Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. Alex Peel, an OB-GYN and a health services researcher from Michigan, about rethinking our model of prenatal care delivery and more specifically about a program that she helped develop called Stay Home, Stay Connected. This program may sound familiar to some of our listeners as we briefly discuss this program in episode 36 with Dr. Via Vicencio about pregnancy during the pandemic. We also have a special announcement we'd like to make. We have totally redesigned our show notes. So instead of having a multi-page PDF, we are creating a one-page PDF that gives you all the tips and tricks and need-to-knows from each episode in one handy sheet. So become a patron and supporter of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast by going to our website, www.womancenteredhealth.com, and click on the Support Us slash Patreon tab. Hi, Dr. Peel. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. So first, could you please provide us a little bit of details about your background? Thanks, Stephanie. It's really great to be here. I'm an OBGYN and a health services researcher here at the University of Michigan. As an OBGYN, I take care of women across the lifespan, helping with everything from painful periods to birth control to pregnancy and delivery and even menopause. And as a health services researcher, I ask and answer questions about how our healthcare system works and how we can make it even better. My research focus and clinical focus is on improving prenatal care delivery to better fit patients' needs, not only for medical care, but also supportive services like education and social support. I'm also the chair of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists Redesigning Prenatal Care Initiative, which is is a national effort to improve prenatal care delivery. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, I'm also a new mom. My son's five months old now, and being a parent has really added just a whole new perspective to my work as a physician and a researcher. Yes, I will definitely agree there. And congratulations. Yes, and congratulations. My research has always been kind of geared towards family planning and unintended pregnancies. And as soon as I had a baby, I was like, it solidified why I do my work even more. So the other question that we ask all of our guests, it's our favorite question, is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? My perspective is really driven by two key influences, my family and my patients. I'll start with my family. Um, We are a very process-driven group. Both my dad and my husband are engineers who constantly question the status quo, questions like, how can we do this better? Or what can make this process work more smoothly? These are constant refrains in our family. Additionally, my mom was a systems analyst who really believed in efficiency. Just to give an example, on school nights, we would pre-pour our cereal so that the next morning would go a little bit smoother. I learned really early on that if you think conscientiously about your tasks, you can really save time for the things that matter to you. The final piece is I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, in the heart of the Deep South. And while I learned the art of Southern hospitality, 
I also saw a less glamorous part of y'all territory. As a Jewish woman, I was asked more than once if I had a tail or horns. And not-so-subtle racism was really prevalent in many of the organizations in my hometown that would exclude members based on race. So these early experiences really fostered a strong sense of justice in me and a desire to work with underserved populations. I've really brought these experiences to patient care and research, and I've continued to grow my passion for improving care processes with a focus on underserved populations. Seeing the pain points that my patients face really inspires new research questions and goals in my work. For example, my passion for improving prenatal care really started while taking care of pregnant patients in a safety net clinic. I saw the burden that my patients were experiencing with prenatal care. Many of them would come to their first appointment, they'd go into their anatomy scan, and they'd complete their glucose screen. And then we wouldn't see them until weeks before delivery. And when I asked them why they had missed appointments, they shared really reasonable explanations. They couldn't get time off of work. They couldn't find childcare. Transportation took a lot of time and was expensive. They felt fine. They could feel the baby moving. They were making an informed decision not to come. And when I looked at the evidence for prenatal care delivery, I found there wasn't any to support how we were currently doing things. We were creating an undue burden for lots of our patients without any evidence to support it. So now bringing those patients' voices to our policy decisions through research is a huge driver of my work. And it's through incorporating patients' voices that we can really do this better for our patients. Okay, I love all that. I think that was our first process response. (laughs) I mean, you're not a nurse, but you're in healthcare. And I feel like engineering and the medical profession, healthcare profession really go well (laughs) together. I'm really fortunate to collaborate with some engineers in my work right now, actually. Mm -hmm. There's um, a great institute, the Center for Health Engineering and Patient Safety here at Michigan Medicine. And we work together to think about how we can make patients' throughput much more efficient and how tailoring care can really affect those processes. It's always amazing to me when I bring questions to my group of engineers, and they're just amazed at some of the lack of standardization and processes in medicine and (laughs) what they could do if they could institute standard work in, in all that we do. Yes, we are working right now with a humans factors engineer about how to handle triaging phone calls from patients who have COVID. So it's it's really interesting. Yeah. A whole new perspective. <laughs> yeah. Also, I love that your mom had you pre-pour cereal <laughs> as a way for process improvement. Like that may be the best example I've ever Was it that heard. <laughs> We would put a piece of saran wrap over it so you just had to peel it back in the morning. And then did you save the saran wrap for the next day? That would have been brilliant. I don't think we did. I think we tore one every time. (laughs) I'm just wondering. (laughs) It's been funny watching my husband with the bottles every night. We have to get the bottles ready for daycare. And now we have a whole process with pre-printed labels so that that goes smoothly as well. This has really continued to be a part of my life. I just so appreciate and love that. Okay, so like we said, today we're going to talk about rethinking our model of prenatal care delivery. And quite honestly, I don't think you could be a more perfect person to talk about this. So let's jump right in. Can you first start out by sharing with us what the general model of prenatal care delivery is and how that model of care was created? So I actually worked with a historian here at U of M, Joel Howe, to better understand this question. Um, It's hard to know where you're going if you don't know how the current system evolved the way it is. So back in the 1800s, prenatal care was largely delivered by lay people in the community. 
But as physicians played a larger and larger role in maternity care and childbirth, we started to see more formal prenatal care delivered by doctors. The first prenatal care schedule that was published came out in 1930, and that was established by the Children's Bureau. That schedule recommended visits monthly for the first six months of pregnancy, every two weeks for the next two months, and then every week in the last month. And for anyone who's gone through prenatal care, that schedule probably sounds familiar. This equates to about 12 to 14 prenatal visits in pregnancy, which is 40 hours of total care. That's an entire work week when you account for travel, testing, ultrasounds, etc. Over the next 100 years, a lot changed. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists was founded in the 1950s. We saw more ultrasound technology. Home pregnancy tests became available. Genetic testing became more widely used. And yet that same model of prenatal care delivery has persisted since 1930. So can you talk more then about what the pros and cons of that mode of of care are? So this model, the standard 12 to 14 in-person visits, is nice because it's easy to remember. It's been practiced for a long time, and maternity care professionals have really been able to develop their practice around it. It's what's familiar. It's what's taught. It's what's our dogma. Also, this is what patients have come to expect. This is the traditional cadence of prenatal care. And for high-risk patients, patients who have medical comorbidities, this is probably the right intensity of care. I think the cons are really highlighted by the patient story that I told about. First, this model is focused exclusively on medical care, and it ignores the other two pillars of prenatal care, anticipatory guidance or education about pregnancy, the postpartum period, and parenting, and also psychosocial support, helping patients to manage the non-medical aspects of their lives that really influence their ability to access and engage in care. That's things like housing and food security, access to payment for utilities, economic stability, intimate partner violence, mental health concerns. The second issue is that a one-size-fits-all model almost never fits all. This model does not account for patients' medical, social, and structural determinants of health or their preferences for care. More tailored care models are likely able to better address patients' needs. What happens when we use a one-size-fits-all model is we see overutilization of care for some patients, particularly those who don't have medical issues or psychosocial conditions. And in fact, we actually see higher rates of cesarean delivery in patients who received more prenatal visits, which suggests that there may actually be harm to having too much care. Here, countries who have better health outcomes in the United States recommend somewhere between two and four less prenatal visits per pregnancy. And when you think about the amount of travel time, time off of work that this involves, that's actually a really big difference. This also could mean underutilization of important services for higher risk patients because of the care model and also because those appointment slots are taken up with lower risk patients. There's this issue of access. We only have a fixed number of appointments available. And then also, this might just be the wrong care for a lot of patients. There's some data that maternity care providers often respond to psychosocial risk factors like adolescent pregnancy or resource insecurity with increased visits. But for a patient who's already having trouble making it to their visits, this could add an additional burden for those who are already struggling. And it doesn't address their underlying need. But when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything's a nail and Physicians don't want to miss the opportunity to help patients. Maternity care professionals generally want to help address their patients' needs, even if we don't have the right tools in our toolbox. 
think the final important thing is that this prenatal care model was not designed by or for patients. And so this was a model that came from maternity care professionals' decisions about how to deliver care and perhaps things that are more convenient for us as we sit in the health system. They don't consider the patient's experience and how we could improve that. Yeah, I think that's an excellent and robust list of pros and cons. And, and right now, I'm in between, so I live in a rural area. So my options are either drive 20 minutes for an appointment or drive an hour. And so I've been driving an hour because I had to go to reproductive endocrinology. And it's like hard to think about driving two hours for a 10-minute appointment. And so when you think about 10 to 12 appointments, driving two hours every time, that's a lot of time. So I'm excited to hear more from you. So obviously, COVID has challenged the world. uh, But specifically, how did or does COVID challenge this general or typical model of care? So I think prenatal care is one of the few areas where COVID has actually accelerated really positive changes in our care delivery. Of course, we wouldn't wish the pandemic on anyone or in any situation, but there have been some nice silver linings to what happened over the past 18 to 24 months. Suddenly, we had to rapidly redesign our prenatal care system to reduce viral exposure and also maintain needed resources. And so we moved towards reduced visit schedules in telemedicine almost overnight. And while this was really pushed by the pandemic, we had been envisioning these changes here at Michigan Medicine and in other places across the country for about a year before the COVID-19 pandemic occurred. This just really accelerated things. The other thing that came out of the pandemic, I think, was we had to open our eyes to how social and structural determinants were really affecting patients' care and realize that we needed to provide our patients with other supportive services, not just focused on medical care and pregnancy. We quickly saw that while these new models with reduced visit schedules and telemedicine were medically safe for our lower-risk patients, some patients really wanted more education and support. And we could provide that through other flexible mechanisms, like our online support groups, Stay Home, Stay Connected. So can you share with us how the pandemic impacted prenatal care delivery at your facility and the development of the Stay Home, Stay Connected program? So we implemented our new prenatal care model at Michigan seemingly overnight. Um, From guideline creation to implementation was about 48 hours. But as we designed and implemented this new model, we recognized that a one-size-fits-all solution would not work for everyone. That was the whole premise of why the original model wasn't working, so a new one-size-fits-all wouldn't work either. In the pandemic, our considerations were a little different. Safety had a totally different connotation, and so keeping patients out of clinic and making sure um, that they had access to high-quality care through telemedicine was a priority. But we wanted to have some of those flexible options to make sure patients felt well-supported and had access to education. There were a couple of ways that we were able to do that. The first was that we had a team of 50 medical students who volunteered their time in this acute pandemic period to call all of our patients, and we take care of thousands of pregnant people. Those students explained the new care model, shared resources, and also helped to identify patients who might need additional social support and connect them to resources as well. We created a more robust online library of prenatal care resources. This was particularly important because things like childbirth education and parenting classes were closed in that acute pandemic time. And then the final piece was Stay Home, Stay Connected. And this was our online support program delivered completely through Zoom. 
This program was developed with maternity care professionals, including physicians and midwives, but also with social workers, psychiatrists, and then students from a variety of backgrounds. We also had input from our patient advisory form. And the idea was to have a program that would deliver both education and social support. Unlike some programs, this program was really focused on mental health. On screening patients at entry, 40% of those who signed up screened positive for depression and anxiety. And so we really wanted to make this a focus of our program and help connect patients to resources in an easy and accessible way um, that didn't have that same barrier to entry that they might have experienced prior. I'm really curious. Since I mean, 40%, that's that's significant. Now, is the mental health piece, was that something y'all assessed prior to doing this program or was this kind of a new and enlightening finding? Yeah, this was surprising. We had included some screeners on our program entry sign up just to get a sense of where our patients were at and help to shape the content that we were developing through the program. But national rates are closer to 10% or even lower. And so this was a really surprising finding to see such high levels. That said, we were feeling this clinically. And when I was seeing patients, when I was calling people to tell them about this new model, people were scared. We didn't know what the pandemic was going to mean for pregnant patients or for their babies. There was a lot of socioeconomic concern at this point too. So while seeing that number was shocking, I think it fit what we were hearing from our patients. Yeah, that that makes sense. How does the stay home, stay connected model of care work and how does it challenge our current conception of prenatal care delivery? So stay home, stay connected is based on a monthly rotation of services. In the first week of the month, patients meet in a small group with women and pregnant people of a similar gestational age. So it's the cohort of patients, a maternity care professional, either a physician or a midwife, and then student facilitators from both medical students as well as social work students. And in those small groups, we have pregnancy-specific topics based on the gestational age. So early in pregnancy, we talk about common discomforts of pregnancy and how to cope. As time goes on, we talk about preparation for labor and delivery. And then after delivery, our groups get together to talk about their postpartum experience in coping with new parenthood. An important component of these sessions is peer support. So the facilitators are able to provide information and move the conversation along. But really, it's the patients talking to each other and giving each other advice um, that drives the heart of these conversations. Then on the third week of the month, we have a large group session that's led with our behavioral health specialists, either a social worker or a psychiatrist. And that includes diverse topics, things like myths of motherhood or dealing with negative thoughts in pregnancy. These large group sessions are also held online, um, but this gives patients exposure to mental health topics and available treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy. I found when I'm seeing a patient who is struggling with depression or anxiety in clinic, this can provide a really nice window into what those therapies might be like. Often patients don't have a sense of what a session with a psychologist or a psychiatrist might be like. And so this lets them try it out without having to go through the formal process of a consult. And those videos are all available online through our Pregnancy Resources website, so anyone can access them. One of the unique aspects of Stay Home, Stay Connected is that we're able to incorporate interprofessional learners. So while this is certainly a program that's designed to benefit our patients, it also has the added bonus of giving trainees exposure to some of these topics and really seeing pregnant patients in a longitudinal way, 
which is something that we miss in a lot of training experiences. Often we're just contacting patients at one time point, but this really lets our learners see the progression of pregnancy into the postpartum period. And additionally, because it's interprofessional, we see that cross-pollination and our medical students actually have training sessions with the social work faculty leads and vice versa to help fill in those knowledge and skill gaps. I think that Stay Home, Stay Connected really emphasizes the importance of care tailoring. Some moms have good support and like seeking out information on their own, and Stay Home, Stay Connected isn't for them, and that's okay. Other moms really benefit from the wraparound services of Stay Home, Stay Connected, and it really lets patients choose their own path. Stay Home, Stay Connected has become one important part of our new prenatal care plan here at Michigan, and that's called the Michigan Plan for Appropriate Tailored Healthcare and Pregnancy, or MyPath. Um, we really emphasize that patients are choosing their own direction in their care. In this model, patients' medical, social, and structural determinants of health, as well as their preferences, are incorporated to design the prenatal care plan. And that includes, of course, medical care, including visit modality, whether patients are doing their visits all in person with their maternity care professional, or having some visits through telemedicine with home devices. But we also emphasize the importance of selecting an education path and a social support preference so that patients really feel that they have that wraparound experience. So then, Alex, can you share with us, then what does in-clinic look like? Like how many visits? Has that changed now with this added part of like the stay home, stay connected? Has that number shifted then? Yeah. So for patients who are in our low risk or our sort of baseline path, those patients will have between eight and nine prenatal care visits with the option for three of them to be done through telemedicine. And we've designed those required in-person visits based on a few things. First, times where patients need to come in for a service, whether that's a lab, an ultrasound, or an exam. The other thing that we've thought about is how can we space the remainder of the visit so that the counseling topics line up and patients can have that continued contact with a maternity care professional but have those sessions focus on gestational age-specific topics. For example, I spend a lot of time at my 32-week visit talking about delivery planning, what patients' preferences are, what they might be thinking about for postpartum contraception, things like that. So the in-person visits are really focused around needed in-person services, and then the virtual visits are the ones that are optional, are um, focused around care tailoring. For patients who are in the virtual path, they um, must have a home blood pressure cuff, which is an important part of screening for preeclampsia or high blood pressure of pregnancy. And so someone who has telemedicine visits is receiving that same high quality of care, just in a slightly different setting. So then do you have a, I don't know if you'd still call it a schedule, then, you know, they come in at nine weeks and then they come in, you know, what are kind of the ones that they come in at? Is that set? Yeah. We try and keep things fairly standard to help us with just delivering a high quality of care. And at Michigan Medicine, our um, prenatal visits have note templates as well as education templates so that that all is organized by gestational age. So up until patients are able to feel fetal movement, we feel it's important for them to come in and have a visit. That way we can check the fetal heart rate. We can provide moms that reassurance and we're able to keep a close eye on the pregnancy. So typically patients will present around 10 weeks. They'll have a 10-week and a 16-week visit in person, and then they have their anatomy ultrasound, the one to check for the structural um, aspects of the baby. 
at around 19 to 21 weeks. The next visit between 22 and 24 weeks can either be in-person or virtual. And then patients have a 28-week visit, and that's a big visit with laboratory testing and vaccinations to help make sure that we're keeping um, everything on the right schedule. After that, there's a 32-week visit, which can be in-person or virtual. And then the 36-week visit is, again, one that needs in-person services, the test for group B strep, a bacteria that can normally live in the vagina that can be dangerous for babies. We also need to check to make sure baby's head is down. Then at 38 weeks, that's an optional in-person versus virtual visit. And then 39 weeks, we do in-person for care delivery planning. I should say that this is the baseline model. This is for patients who don't have other medical comorbidities. For someone who has chronic hypertension, diabetes, other medical issues, they may need more in-person visits, particularly towards the end of pregnancy when we're doing antenatal testing or checking the baby's heart rate over a 20-minute period or doing additional ultrasounds. But those patients can benefit from home monitoring, um, monitoring their blood pressure with a greater frequency at home, and that may at least be able to reduce some of the burden of travel for those patients. And how did you come up with that basic timeline of the 10 to 16? What informed that decision? I think it was a very engineering-esque process. So we looked at all of the services that need to be delivered in pregnancy and at what interval those are done. Um, We made a big spreadsheet and lined up those services and looked at how we could move some together within their recommended time interval. Um, So accomplishing the most services as possible at each visit and then spacing out the others as much as possible between those. There is an evidence gap on the frequency needed for some prenatal care services, specifically how often do we need to check blood pressure? Do we need to check fetal heart tones more frequently? Do we need to check weight or fundal heights? That literature is not as robust as we would like for it to be. And we hope with the increasing use of home monitoring that soon we'll start to see some studies that give us more data on that. Could you talk more about how you designed this program and then how you went about implementing it? So the design came from a lot of thought work that I had done over the 18 months leading up to the pandemic. We had looked at international models of prenatal care. We had looked at early trials of telemedicine. And from that information, what was in the literature, we knew that reduced visit schedules were the standard of care in many pure countries to the United States that had better health outcomes than the U.S. And that telemedicine had shown some great early promise for prenatal care. When we first had the shutdown in March of 2020, we had to move quickly. And so we took that pre-existing knowledge and translated it into a guideline. In part, it was that spreadsheet work that I talked about. How could we move these services together and cluster them around in-person contacts? And how could we make sure that we were providing support between those visits so that patients didn't feel abandoned or feel like there was no um, support in between their prenatal care? So after that, we put this initial guideline in front of a diverse group of maternity care experts. We had everyone from maternal fetal medicine doctors who were the high-risk folks, obstetrician gynecologists like myself, but also people who were involved in nursing in social work, who were patient advocates to make sure that we weren't missing other aspects of care that would be really important to our patient population. And then we had to put it into action. So to do that, we created a couple of supports. There are things that are a little less glamorous, like EHR supports and having note templates. 
um, having patient education materials and a website. And uh, it was tough. We work in a big health system. There are over 150 maternity care providers who give prenatal care at 12 different clinics across the greater Ann Arbor area. That's not to mention all of the staff who support these people, um, everyone who is doing scheduling and helping to get the prenatal visits on the right time or scheduling ultrasounds and antenatal testing. But we had all hands on deck. And even though it was sort of like building the plane while flying it, we were able to get that out. A big part of it was the communication to our patients. I mentioned that um, we had that team of 50 medical students who helped to communicate this information and call all of our patients. I think that this was a big change for our patients. It's really hard when you say you need to come in and see us for 12 to 14 visits in pregnancy. Suddenly, actually, eight is okay, and you don't even have to be in person for some of them. And so we had a communication specialist who helped us with some of that messaging helped us to create visual abstracts defining what was happening. And also who helped us just with putting out those email messages and um, information on our website for our patients. Equity was a big concern. For many of our patients, buying a $35 blood pressure cuff was no big deal. But for some of them, it really was a financial burden. And we were really fortunate to secure a donation early on in this process of blood pressure cuffs. And we had a huge team who helped with um, identifying patients who needed that for financial reasons and actually had physicians driving blood pressure cuffs to patients' homes and dropping them on the doorstep to make sure that they had access. This was a big undertaking. And actually, our work here in Michigan Medicine gained national attention. And so following the initial acute wave of the pandemic, we partnered with ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, to create new national prenatal care guidelines. Our new care recommendations were developed in collaboration with 19 maternity care stakeholders. This included the CDC, the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, the American College of Nurse Midwives, A1 was at the table. We also had patient representatives, and these were just published in Obstetrics and Gynecology, one of the major OBGYN journals. We're really excited about these new recommendations. They're meant to apply not just during the pandemic, but actually to really redesign how we think about prenatal care. And these recommendations include screening for structural and social determinants of health from the beginning of pregnancy, tailoring care delivery to identify needs, both those social and structural determinants, as well as medical needs, using telemedicine and remote monitoring in pregnancy. And finally, we really emphasize the need for connecting patients to social services, not just meeting social needs with more prenatal visits. We plan to do a big listening tour over the next um, year and a half to gain stakeholders' perspectives on these guidelines. What do they help? What do they not address? And we'll reconvene our panel in about two years to readdress these guidelines and take in the new information that we gain. I have to say the QI nerd in me is just so excited about how much stakeholder engagement you have and who's all at the table. I think it's really impressive. And also just reassuring to hear how many different folks you are bringing to this redesign. And I think you made a really interesting point, and you see this with the pandemic, is this communication of changing guidelines. And some folks see that as, well, you had it wrong, we've been doing it wrong, and now we don't trust you. And when really... This is a scientific process, right? We change our minds. We adopt new evidence. It's good to do that. And so I'm interested. I don't know how much 
this is in your brain. But yeah, what was that like to structure that message to, because I'm assuming, you know, say we have a listener who wants to implement this is what does that, what did that communication piece look like to say, hey, we're completely changing our model of care here. I think this is a particularly tricky message right now when we know that rates of maternal morbidity and mortality are so high. And so to say in this time of increased focus on the health of women in pregnancy, suddenly you need less care. It's a really tricky message. I have found in my personal experience that starting with the patient's stories is really important. So why more care is not better and why that may actually be harmful for some patients is a really important place to begin. I think the other thing is that I wouldn't um, consider this a downsizing of care. The term that we try and use is right-sizing. Not every patient should experience less care. Some patients may actually need more frequent contact than what we're giving them right now. Some people may need different contact, less with perhaps a maternity care professional, a midwife or an OBGYN, and more with a social worker. And so really thinking about that individualization of care has been part of my focus. But it's tricky. It's always hard implementing change, especially with something that's so ingrained as prenatal care. So yeah, can you talk about that a little bit more? Like, what are some of the issues that you ran into that were maybe unexpected or expected, really, that you had to work through? I think in the first iteration of our model, one of the biggest issues was the access to blood pressure cuffs. And this seems like such a simple thing. Primary care has been giving patients blood pressure cuffs for decades. In part, it was coverage. It's really hard to quickly negotiate with payers to provide durable medical equipment coverage for an item. And we really struggled with that negotiation. The second thing was even for patients who could purchase these cuffs on their own, how do we make sure that they're accurate, that they're used correctly, and that we can trust the values? Unlike the chronic hypertension world where we're able to tolerate a fair variety in those blood pressure readings, two elevated blood pressures in pregnancy can totally change your trajectory and lead us to induce you earlier, help you to have your baby sooner. And so needing that precision with a home measurement, I think, was something we weren't prepared for and we've um, continued to have to negotiate. And so launching this model when our main concern was safety and the COVID-19 pandemic, and trying to maintain the high quality care, that was a huge challenge and a big push and pull. I think now that we're in our newer version of the model, my path, which really focuses on patient choice, that tension has improved. We're able to take a little more time to get patients their devices. We can help them to find the right path for them. And we're letting them select what's right for them rather than pushing them into one model, which has been a really important part of this new iteration and was something that we knew was important from the beginning. We were just limited by the sort of public health situation. I'm feeling like you, Nicole. I'm like nerding out on the evidence-based practice stuff. And I'm like wanting to ask all these like questions about that. But I'm like, oh, wait, no, <laughs> this isn't this isn't time for Stephanie. I know in my head, I'm like, oh, man, like if Vax could listen to Alex and like how she did this massive model overhaul, like how cool would that be for them? But we, we might have more invitations for you to speak. <laughs> great. Yes. You know, and, and I think what's tricky is we, we're moving from a non-evidence-based practice. The 12 to 14 visits was not evidence-based itself to another sort of evidence-based 
we had evidence for some components. You know, there's robust randomized control trial data and even meta-analysis level data for the reduction in visits for low-risk patients. But how many patients actually fit that low-risk category is probably um, far fewer than we would like. And so figuring out what we do now, how do we adjust these models in this period of sort of equivocal evidence or lacking evidence to match patients' needs mm-hmm. while helping people feel safe? It's not straightforward. Right. No, and I, I think, you know, so we I teach evidence-based practice and that's what we tell our nurses all the time is sometimes there isn't any evidence or the evidence is is lacking a lot. And so you might just have to use your patient's preferences or scientific principles or, you know, things, things that aren't research studies. And I think that your my path is really doing that. That was something that we emphasized in the national panel that we ran. We used the RAND UCLA appropriateness method, which is a really nice consensus methodology that allows you to use evidence where available, but also bring in expert opinion. And one of the big thoughts that came out of the panel was in these places of clinical equipoise, that's where patient preference should come in. And so new recommendations allow for patients to select between a lower intensity or a higher intensity visit schedule to select between telemedicine or in-person visits. We don't have evidence that one is better than the other. They may be equal. And in that setting, it should really be the patient's preferences that are driving the decisions. So then what outcomes have you seen since implementing this new model of care? So I would love to be able to share health outcomes with y'all. But unfortunately, as you know, it can be really tricky to assess some of these implementation models, particularly at the time of a global pandemic, when there were such differences in social stressors, economic issues, um, and other outside influences that could have had an effect on the model. So we're submitting some pretty big grants in the upcoming months, wish us luck, to use some advanced statistical modeling to understand how these changes influence prenatal care utilization and outcomes. But until we're several months outside of the initial change, it'll be really tough to share those outcomes. Pregnancy is nine months, and then we need some time to assess those outcomes after. So we need a little bit more time before we can get that kind of data. That said, we have been able to do some patient and provider satisfaction work. And I think that this is really important as we talk about equipoise and um, needing patient preferences to drive what we're doing. We thought about this in three big categories, access, quality, and satisfaction. Access, patient's ability to get to care. Quality, are these models safe and effective for delivering prenatal care services? And satisfaction, how do people feel in them? We did a big survey here at Michigan Medicine. We included patients as well as providers who were delivering the care. We wanted to make sure that we really had this broad broad perspective. And we had about 300 patients and um, 70% of our providers, our maternity care providers responded to the survey. Overall, people felt like the new model with reduced visits and telemedicine improved access. However, people were very concerned about the digital divide. Would patients who had trouble accessing broadband or who couldn't get access to home devices be locked out of these new models? That's particularly concerning because those are the patients who might stand to benefit the most. Audio-only telemedicine is one way to overcome that. Unfortunately, there's been some concern that payers will not continue to reimburse at the same rate. And so that's a huge policy issue to consider. On the quality side, overall, people felt that the quality of the visits was the same. 
for in-person and for telemedicine. Although this survey was done at a time where not everyone had access to a blood pressure cuff, and that was the biggest driver of quality concerns. Patients who had had high blood pressure in the past or who had had complicated pregnancies before were really worried about what it meant to be at home with these visits and not be taking these measures slowly. And that was also a concern for our providers. And so now anyone who's on our hybrid pathway with telemedicine and in-person visits has to have a blood pressure cuff for safety. As far as satisfaction, this model was great for some patients, particularly patients who had had a baby before, who were working, or who had um, issues with obtaining childcare or transportation. People talked about not having to wait in the waiting room for a long time or not having to pack everybody up and get them to the clinic and how this was just a more convenient way to deliver care. Providers also talked about this being a, a way of doing a home visit with their patient. They could see where the patient lived. They could maybe meet their spouse or see their cat. And that provided a really intimate look into patients' lives that really helped them to feel more connected. That said, some patients really felt abandoned by this model. They didn't like that they weren't able to see their provider in person. They missed that physical contact that comes from being in an in-person setting. And so I think on the satisfaction side, the most important finding is that this isn't for everyone. For some patients, it's great. For some patients, it doesn't quite work. And we really need to let patients select which pathway is best for them. Yeah, I think that is an awesome point. Just working in OB, like you have those patients who call every day. <laughs> they have a lot of anxiety for whatever reason, even if it's not medically needed. They just, you know, that's just their personality. And then other people are like, I don't want anything. I'm going to give birth at home if I could. <laughs> and they're just very relaxed about it. And so I think we're not going to change people's perspectives on things like that all the time. It's their personality. So I think that's a, a great way to do it. And I think this is where programs like Stay Home, Stay Connected become really valuable. It gives patients a group of other people who are going through the same thing that they are, a chance to, to speak with them and to run those concerns off of, sort of have that gut check. It also gives them these large group sessions to practice some skills for managing those emotions. What do I do when I'm feeling so anxious that I can't work or I can't think about anything but what's going on with the pregnancy? And perhaps most importantly, it gives them an additional checkpoint. That's two extra one-hour sessions a month that they're checking in with someone who is a maternity care professional or a mental health professional. You're really giving that additional contact without having someone go all the way to an office or have to stop what they're doing and travel. Yeah, I was going to ask you earlier, and I was like, oh, I'll wait till we get to this question, was how and if, you know, I'm thinking if I were in that stay home, stay connected program, have you had pregnant folks connect with each other even outside of that? And, you know, kind of has it developed relationships? How have you seen any of that happen? Yeah, the best example of this is um, a group that was led by Deborah Rizel, who's one of our amazing midwives. She had a background in childbirth education, and her group had such a strong connection that they have continued to meet. They're now five months after their delivery or after the last person gave birth, and the program only formally runs for two months after delivery. So they have found such a connection that they've created their own group, and they continue to meet to provide that support as they move into later stages of parenthood. That's fabulous because I was just thinking, you know, if you're the mom who has kids before all your friends have kids and you're kind of in some uncharted territory and 
you know, when you don't have kids, it's just different. Like you, you don't really know what that's like (laughs) until you have kids. And so I can imagine that again, if you're kind of in that solo mission, not a lot of your support network having, you know, being in that same stage of life as you, that this could be really fabulous for those folks. Absolutely. Yeah. It can be a very isolating time, I think, in the postpartum period, especially. So I think that's awesome. So our podcast is about communication and we usually talk about the patient and clinician level type of communication. But can you talk about how systems communicate to patients? So in this, in your stay home, stay connected model of care, what do you, how do you think it communicates to patients and how do you think the messaging compares or contrasts from what the current model of care communicates? (laughs) Yeah, so I think that we've tried to be really intentional about this new prenatal care model. Um, starting with the name, My Path, really emphasizes that it's an individual patient's experience, and we've tried to embed that in all that we do. One component of that is prioritizing elements of care that might be missed in routine prenatal visits, really thinking about education and social support as key tenants of prenatal care with equal value as the medical care that they receive. And we've incorporated that from the first moment a patient calls us. They, um, if they're enrolled in our online portal, receive information that talks about my path in those three pillars. And then when they do their nursing intake, they also review those three components equally to drive that message home. I think the other thing that we've emphasized in my path that was really missing in prenatal care before is that patients are the experts in their own care. They know what's best for them. They know what care model will work. And so we've tried to really bring that to the forefront of what we're doing. I think the other piece is that in my path, we've really elevated mental health topics, particularly through Stay Home, Stay Connected. And we've made this an easily accessible option for our patients. I think that sends the message, we care about your social and emotional well-being just as much as your medical care. We care about your depression screen as much as your blood pressure. I think often that message is missed when patients are coming in and they see their visit as a quick blood pressure check, a heart rate check, and off they go. Well, Stay Home, Stay Connected specifically, I think it's a really incredible time to show patients that you value them. In current practice, we're supposed to see our prenatal patients in somewhere between 10 and 20 minutes. And after we manage all of the medical components of care, there's often not a lot of time for other questions or for providing patients counseling. Or if we are providing that, we're answering questions as we walk out the door. This is a tension that I feel in my own practice. I love nothing more than sitting and talking with patients. Often when I'm on call and have a few down moments, I'll go sit in a patient's room. But in clinical practice, that time means that Someone else isn't getting your attention, and that's really hard to juggle. What I love about Stay Home, Stay Connected is that we have time to listen and engage with patients and really value their voice in a way that I think is challenging in routine day-to-day care. I've said this in a few different facets of life, but it's kind of funny when you start to think about how low the bar is, you know, like humanizing a patient. Like this, this is a person who has a story, has trauma, has a life outside of the hospital. And, you know, even think of politics, like these are people that, you know, we're impacting. And in some ways it just seems the bar is so low. And so I love that you're raising the bar and you're fully acknowledging that these are people 
who have lives, who, you know, it's not just about the heart rate. It's not just about the blood pressure, but how are you emotionally, mentally handling this? Because, I mean, if you've had a kid, you know that it's more than just a physical game. (laughs) There's a big mental piece to that. (laughs) And there's a lot of social pieces to that. And so I just so appreciate it how much in the bar that you're elevating. I'm I'm here for it all day long. I love it. Uh, so how can our listeners access more information about this program and how can they implement this model of care at their facility? So we have a well-curated website from Michigan Medicine, the MyPath website, that gives all of the information on our prenatal care model and provides all of our educational resources and information on Stay Home, Stay Connected. And I think we can include that link in the materials after this program. That will allow you to access our full library of Stay Home, Stay Connected videos. And if this is something that you're interested in implementing, our team would love to support you and share our resources. As far as the more general program for MyPath, there are new online guidelines that you can access through Obstetrics and Gynecology. That's the MyPath prenatal care panel recommendations. And we have an infographic as well that outlines those changes in a slightly more accessible, less jargony fashion. We would, again, be happy to answer any questions on the implementation of right-sized tailored prenatal care and look forward to hearing questions from you. Awesome, because I'm already like, I want you to come to University of Iowa, (laughs) Grand Rounds. And I'm like, I think we need to do this because, especially because we're so, we serve so many rural Iowans or rural and like people come from Missouri and Illinois and Wisconsin even. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure, especially now that these things are done online. You know, I'm I'm happy to travel, but it's even easier now. That's true. Yeah. Thrilled to to share. This is my my passion. There's no reason prenatal care should be delivered in a way that's harmful for patients. And I think that we can really improve the quality of care and patients' experience. Yeah. So what is one thing that you would want all clinicians to know about stay home, stay connected model of care or just rethinking prenatal care in general? I would love for people to know that we can build these new models of prenatal care that are tailored to patients' needs and preferences. We have tons of supporting resources here at Michigan Medicine to help make that transition easier. And I think that we've found many of the bumps in the road to help smooth your process but the rewards for implementing a model like this are so high. This is a really technical question, but I was thinking about this as you're talking as well, is did insurance and reimbursement create any barriers for, you know, I'm thinking of like all the stakeholders engaged and obviously insurance plays a huge role in medical care delivery. And I'm just wondering, was that easy to smooth out or how did that work out? Yeah, prenatal care payment is an interesting space. Many of us are in a global payment structure where all of prenatal care is built together. And sometimes prenatal care is grouped together with the delivery, hospitalization, and postpartum care. What that means is we have some flexibility. Most payers specify a minimum number of prenatal visits that are required to meet that global payment. For our payers here in Michigan, that's typically seven visits. And so for us, it was actually fairly easy to implement within this pay structure because there was no difference. The pairs are sort of agnostic to how those visits are done. 
But that was a consideration. Um, would these virtual visits count towards that global payment minimum? We had reassurance fairly early on from our payers that that would be acceptable, but that was certainly um, something that we wanted to check on and confirm. This is very different for people who are in a fee-for-service model, where they are billing individually for each of the prenatal visits. I will say that um, the value argument is driven by other patients that you can bring in if you are not seeing pregnant patients for the full 12 to 14 visits. That can allow you to bring in more patients with higher billing potential. For example, more procedural visits or more visits that will generate surgery for the OBGYNs. And for other specialties, there are similar um, spaces that can be filled. Or in places that have difficulty with access, reducing that total number of visits to a more appropriate tailored model can actually increase your ability to see more folks and have more people in your system. That's actually a question I'm working with my systems engineering group on right now is how do changes in prenatal care visit schedules influence our access and influence things like delayed appointments or need to overbook or reschedule patients. And it looks like from our early data, this model really does improve access and reduce those negative scheduling consequences. So the the final piece is the coverage of um, blood pressure cuffs and home equipment. That has yet to be determined with payers. We would love to see payers cover a high-quality blood pressure cuff that's been validated in pregnancy for pregnant patients. That universal coverage would just help for us to get those devices into patients' hands and ensure that everyone has access to telemedicine. So that will be a big point of advocacy in the future and making sure that that access is guaranteed. I love some of the communication tips you kind of rolled in there. And I'm wondering if you have any others say, I want to pitch this to my director, CEO, whoever that may be for whoever's listening. What are some maybe some quick tips on how to craft this argument and, and pitch this to them? That's a great question. And I think so much depends on the audience that you're talking to. For the maternity care professionals, you have to make this easy for them. Everyone is really busy in their clinical practice, and the idea of overhauling everything you do is really intimidating. So with our maternity care professionals, we focus on the supports that we've created and how this makes prenatal care more efficient. We have dot phrases um, or implementation templates for people to use in their clinics. We have standard education so that everything flows together, and that can be really helpful for our maternity care provider colleagues. When you're talking to a payer, it's a very different argument. You want to talk about high quality of care and detecting complications earlier, helping to get patients out of the hospital sooner after delivery. If they already have access to a blood pressure cuff and are trained, perhaps their postpartum hospitalization can be shorter if they have hypertensive disorders in pregnancy, which we know around 20% of our patients will develop. And so those are some of the arguments that we've used on the payer side. For our public payers in particular, um, some of them here in Michigan are covering transportation to visits. And so that's a really easy value argument. One transportation session to and from a visit would be the equivalent of the cost of a blood pressure cuff. And so that can help to encourage coverage of these devices and encourage payers to move into this model or supporting this model. And then from the health system side, I think that this is really the future of prenatal care. And so when you're talking to your executives, your hospital leaders, really thinking about this as a market differentiator. Patients are going to start to demand this care flexibility. They're not going to want to come in for all of their visits, knowing that 
they have to miss work or they um, have to find childcare. And so that can be a really important driver on the hospital system level that this can really set us apart as delivering the highest level of quality care. And finally, this is the new national standard as of two weeks ago. Of course, it always takes a long time for guidelines to make it into practice, but this is the care recommendation that we'll look to moving forward. And so helping to get everyone on board can be driven by our professional societies as well. And everyone heard it here first. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so my last nerd question, and then I'll stop. I'll stop getting in the weeds here. So my last nerd question is, is I'm a big rural health person. And obviously, connectivity stuff, that's a really big thing for rural folks. So I didn't know if you've seen any good things, bad things. How can this help? What impact does this have for rural people in particular? So I am not an expert in rural care, but I've been really fortunate to partner with some folks from rural health associations, particularly through family medicine, including Dr. Beth Choby, who's helped me to understand these issues a little bit better. Telemedicine has the potential to really improve care access for people who live far away from services and keep them from having to travel long distances for these quick appointments, just like you mentioned earlier in our conversation. But the broadband connectivity has been quite challenging. There are some efforts on the national level to help build the infrastructure in broadband so that everyone has access. And that, I think, is the crucial solution that we need. But in the interim, using audio-only methodology really can improve that access and that connectivity so that patients are able to get these services without the huge travel burden, really allowing them to be connected to different centers without that additional strain. So I think that's a space that we'll see a lot of growth in. There have been some interesting theories um, or interesting proposals, such as using libraries and other community centers as internet access points for people who may not have that capability. And with that, having home devices available in those centers for patients to use, of course, with proper training and cleaning procedures could be another way in the interim before broadband is more widely available to help to reduce that burden. This is kind of off the current topic a bit, but I was wondering if you had a lot of resistance from other maternal provi- maternal care providers. You know, we talk about that, like you mentioned dogma. We also call that like sacred cows. Like these prenatal appointments are sacred cows and a lot of physicians who've been practicing for a long time are resistant to sort of let some of those things go. Did you have that issue and how did you work with that? I think there were two main issues that we faced. The first is the evidence-based practice issue. And the second is the implementation piece. On the evidence-based side, people really wanted data that this was a safe model. And having the information that the model they were practicing in before was not evidence-based doesn't feel satisfying for people who really want to know before they make a big change. So I think that was a hard hurdle to overcome. We certainly collected all of the information that we had, the randomized controlled trial data on reduced visit schedules, the early data on telemedicine, and then the promise of more data was really helpful for many of our stakeholders, knowing that we're actively looking into these questions and trying to answer them was helpful for them to adopt this model and be part of the change themselves. The second piece was on the implementation side. This was rolled out in the middle of the pandemic. We were using different staffing models. People were being asked to cover labor and delivery for a week at a time. They were being asked to cover clinics that weren't their own or to do an entire week of clinic 
um, whereas we normally alternate between our practice settings. And so I think asking people to do one more thing during that time was really hard. And we were really fortunate to have a group that rolled up their sleeves and said, this is what we need to do right now. Okay. I think we helped to make that a little easier with some of the support that I've talked about, EHR tools, patient education. We had pocket cards of what the new visit schedule was. We had easy links to get to for the guidelines. But in the end, people were really determined to do what was right for our patients. And that drove practice change. I love that. So are there any other resources that you would like to share with our listeners? Like you mentioned the um, Stay Home, Stay Connected website. Are there any others? So the new ACOG guidelines are a great resource for anyone who's looking for that read. And the infographic that goes with it can help to just walk you through the new changes. Our group also has some interesting papers on prenatal care redesign that might be of interest, more of the theoretical background. And then our paper on uh, patient and provider experience with this new model is also available to help give a more um, precise assessment of what patients' experiences were in this new process. And I'm just thinking if you have these links readily available for the papers that you're citing... Yeah. That you could send us because then we can include that. Yeah, just email. Yeah, yeah, just email us. No problem. I can send those over. Perfect. So, Dr. Peel, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health care through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end? No, it was such a pleasure getting to speak with you all today. And I just look forward to hearing from your listeners and answering any of their questions on prenatal care redesign. Well, thank you so much. This is super interesting. Yes, thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. 